Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Eve Gabrielle Labouf, co-founder of Flinks. Flinks is a Canadian-based data aggregation software company that basically creates software that scrapes data from various financial institutions to allow third parties and themselves to utilize that data for various services for consumers. So with that, here is my interview with Eve Gabriel. Hello, Eve Gabriel. Hey. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. So Eve Gabriel of Flinks, tell me about Flinks. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Flinks is a financial aggregation API. Um, we started the company about 16 months ago here in Montreal, and we basically focused on getting to the market a first product, which is the financial aggregation API that we provide to more than a hundred customers now. So basically what we do is we connect software with uh, financial institutions, and we're basically the data mover behind the softwares. Okay. I've got many, many questions, but before we get there, let's get on to your journey. So tell me about uh, what it is you did before this and how you came to start Flinks. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, it is uh, like a back-end process, so you don't like brainstorm on business ideas and uh, get that on the table right away, right? So before starting Flinks, I've always been involved in basically uh, all kind of, I would say, web programming. But my last venture before starting Flinks was really about the lending sphere. So I was a tech consultant for lending companies. I was basically working on origination automation. So basically, when you apply for a loan, make sure that you can basically have a uh, an answer of uh, your application right away. So we were basically building algorithm based on the transactions behavior. So like, do you spend all your money after a pay deposit or do you have uh, employment income uh, since only two weeks and you told us uh, four months and whatsoever. So uh, I was working there and there I had the chance to work with a bunch of, I would say, financial data provider from the United States. And this is basically where I saw the opportunity here for uh, the Canadian market to have Canadian dedicated financial aggregation API. Uh, FinTech was booming at that time and is still booming. So yeah, this is pretty much where we started. So knowing what I know about the differences between Canadian financial systems and other places around the world, this is not a small task, is it now? (laughs) (laughs) Not at all, no. (laughs) I think we can say though uh, about the Canadian market is that because we have a small amount of financial institutions covering a high percentage of the population, it makes us basically work a lot on the quality and the speed of the data. So uh, compared to like the United States, where you have like thousands of different financial institutions, the challenges are really different. Yeah. But that being said, I mean, we have some basic fundamental structural issues. I mean, only recently have some of the banks in Canada been announcing APIs to allow open access to their data. So I would think that you guys are still doing a lot of data scraping, a lot of unfortunately reauthorizations where as I know, using mint.com and any other data aggregation tool that every now and then I'm going to be re- asked to re-enter my password in over and over again. I'm guessing those are challenges you're still facing. Yeah, absolutely. The core of our technology is still screen scraping, like most of the uh, aggregators uh, out there. A thing we like to say is that we've been able to basically add a set of, I would say, like highly technological features that make us reduce the number of MFAs, so the multi-factor authentication. And one of them mm-hmm. is something we call enhanced MFA. So basically, once you like connect your account, let's say you use Mint, 
and you connect your account. So instead of like being asked the questions all the time for like the next six months and like having to reconnect your account all the time, we're able to go and get all the questions. And the first time you connect your account, we ask you all your answers to all your questions. So that way you don't like have to reconnect your account in the future. So we've work, worked out some, like I would say, small things like that in order to uh, create a better uh, UX for uh, the software that user API. Now was really, now I would think that there's, there's a couple of really, really big players in this space, specifically in the US and, you know, Yodely is the first one that comes to mind. Was this basically an opportunity to focus on a smaller market that maybe the Americans were not paying as much attention to? Was that your thinking? I would say yes for the first product that we have developed. And the reason I'm saying that is like for us, we're entrepreneurs, we're three founders and we're uh, the three of us entrepreneurs. We had a bunch of different ideas before starting a financial aggregation API. And in order for us to develop any of the ideas that we had, we had basically to work on a reliable access to the financial data, right? So yes, the short-term opportunity was really to bring that API on a like, easy go-to-market, fast go-to-market here in Canada. But we're starting to work on, I would say, more inside products that are completely different from what I could consider as my competitors uh, from the United States. Okay. Now that is a very big tease. What is an inside product? Can you tell us all about it? <laughs> so uh, basically, one of the things we're launching in the next two, three weeks is what we call a behavioral score. So uh, we're analyzing all your transactions behavior. And obviously, this is with the end user consent and on the demand of uh, the company using your API. So uh, we're analyzing your transactional behavior and we're pushing back to our client a risk score for better origination. So let's say you go and ask a mortgage at, I don't know, any of the banks. We're able basically to push back a score to them to assess the risk of giving you access to that capital and to help them basically calculate if they can get their money back on a monthly basis. So that's interesting. So to date, the most data aggregators have simply been providers of information and company that's been paying for said data has been doing sort of things like that, whether it be like the lending loops of the world who we have had on the show or you know any other number of uh, permutations of this. They've been basically taking the information and doing that kind of maybe doing that risk scoring or figuring out their own methodology for it. But what you're doing is you're now kind of moving down the pipeline or the value chain, providing that kind of information off the shelf with your data aggregation product. So in effect, you're kind of replacing Equifax or TransUnion for those types of things, are you not? We could say that. We like to say that it's like the credit score 2.0. And in like mm -hmm. Flink's, I would say Flink's vision is basically to enhance financial data, right? So uh, providing just the access to the data is not enough for now, right? So um, so we've made like a bunch of partnerships with different lenders across Canada in order to basically analyze their data and provide that scoring system that we're launching in, in the next couple of weeks. So that's that's very interesting. I mean, um, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because I mean, at some point, you know, this is still relatively new, but at some point, access to data becomes commoditized because, I mean, everybody can, there's going to be multiple vendors and Absolutely, people yeah. can start to build themselves, right? So you're trying to move with the value chain, which makes sense. I didn't get a, lots of questions from what you just said here. So in terms of the behavioral information, like what kind of behavioral information are you garnering from that kind of data? Or is that, you know, secret sauce you can't talk about? <laughs> so we're not using any identifiable information for now. Uh, we don't have plans to use them at all for now. We really want to stick on the, like the behavior with the money of the end user. So it's really about like your transactional behavior and the movement of your money between your different accounts. So let's say you have a credit card, saving account and checking account in the same set of credentials that was provided to our API. 
we're analyzing both the money movement between these three accounts and the transactions on each of these accounts. So uh, do you spend a lot with your credit card, but don't spend at all with uh, with your checking account? Do you have a lot of money in your checking account, but you pay your credit card late every month, which mm-hmm. would affect your credit yeah. score right now, but still uh, you could be not that risky since you have money in your checking account. So it's really about like your behavior with uh, with the money for now. So given the Equifax hack last year, I mean, your timing on this is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <I'm> sure. <laughs> We're looking for a much more secure provider who doesn't use admin as a username and admin as a password. So uh, well done. So I kind of find this interesting because a couple of things. First of all, I feel like most of the data aggregation to date has been done to pull data away from traditional lenders or traditional institutions. But in essence, what you're doing with this is you're basically pulling data from every institution that the client authorizes and then almost selling it back and then basically giving it back to the one vendor they're choosing to deal with on that one topic. So you're almost you're kind of closing the loop. You're going back to the originator of that data in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really about like the end user consent. Right. And one thing we see in Canada most of the time is that the average Canadian have like about three different bank accounts from three different financial institutions, which means maybe your mortgage is with a national bank and your normal checking account is with TD, right? So that being said, because they don't like necessarily share the information right now, it's an easy way for them to better assess their risk based on the behavior that is not currently stuck in the other financial institutions. We like to say it's a bit like your medical file, right? So right now mm-hmm. you do have the right basically to go and get your medical file and go see another clinic or whatever. So um, it should be the same with financial data because your past financial data should show how risky or not risky you are. So that's a, yeah. that's a bit of a mindset. It's interesting. I mean, and one of the things I've touched upon in several episodes, one of the things I'm a true believer in is the portability of one's financial data. And, yeah. and frankly, what, whereas we legally own the information to date, the portability has been abysmal, probably by, on some degrees, almost by design. And frankly, I think it's abhorrent. And and Frank, you know, thank you for helping enable that kind of thing, because I'm a big believer in the future of, you know, personal data lockers for this sort of thing where we have access and control our identities with all our financial data. I mean, when I have clients say to me, geez, I really wish I knew what I contributed to my RSP since I started this thing. And it's like, well, I've only had you for five years. I can't tell you what happened beforehand. And that is just that, you know, in this day and age, that's that's inexcusable, quite frankly. So. Yes, you mentioned something there about the average Canadian having three accounts at three different financial institutions. Is that a statistic you found from your data or is that just something that is known to be an average? That is known to be an average. We don't correlate the data from one client to another. We don't necessarily have the right to use the data of our clients. So it's important to say that in order to develop the scoring system I was talking about, we had to do partnership with lenders across Canada since we're not using the data out of the, the instances of our clients. So I don't have any data about that from uh, Flink's uh, databases as of now, but yeah, so it's, it's a public it's data. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, in, in the day and age of the Cambridge Analytica scandals and whatever, it's important yeah. to state that you guys are not, you know, it's not like you guys are getting connections from five different institutions and doing this without authorization. You're, you're doing it because either the consumer has authorized this through some sort of, some sort of do-it-yourself portal, or they're looking for a financial product and from an institution and they've authorized that institution to look at all their data. 
Right. Right. So very much still under the control and the power and the disclosure rights of the consumer. It's interesting that three step because I actually earlier, well, late last year had a debate with a executive who happens to work within a company that owns one of the largest data aggregators in the U.S. who shall go unmentioned. And their argument was, well, you know, there's not as much demand for data aggregation in Canada because most Canadians deal with one bank. And I've said, well, <laughs> sorry, maybe my client base is different, but that is not the case. I mean, like, even my personal situation, I think I've got, you know, factor in the corporations I have, I deal with four, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's definitely necessary. And not only that, I mean, just from a portability standpoint, it's absolutely necessary. So to date, I'm curious how much of your consumer base has been let's say startups or people that reach out to the end user directly on a kind of almost do-it-yourself basis versus traditional financial institutions versus say uh, newer financial institutions like the Wealth Simples and Robo Advisors of the world? That's a very good question. Um, I think we don't work with that many startups. It hmm. depends on like the, the definition of a startup, right? If I don't consider Wealth Simple a startup, then we don't work with that many startups. <laughs> Fair so, enough. But it, it's still- well, a, They have a lot more startup. money than the average startup, so yeah. that's okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So that, that's the mindset here. So I would say like right now, we don't work with that many financial institutions as well. The average customer at Flinks is really like between, I would say, 30 and 150 employees, Canadian mm -hmm. software company. More and more, we have our client requests from around the world that are doing business here in Canada. TransferWise is an example. I mean, they were created in the UK and we announced the partnership a couple of months ago with them. So it's basically like they need, even though they are based in the international, like any other country, in fact, they absolutely need to uh, cover the Canadian market well. And that's why Flinks comes in play in comparison with like the mindset you just shared about one of the US vendor. We're a small market, but we do have demand for access to the financial data, right? But we cover a bunch of different, very interesting market segments. There is other market segments we don't basically offer anything for now. Insurance market is one, an example. We think this is something that might grow in the future because most insurance companies gain a lot of getting access to data, right? So yeah, we, we cover about like eight different market segments for now. Interesting. So overall, I mean, what's been your general uh, reception from traditional banks and financial institutions? Because they have been over, uh, you know, in my opinion, somewhat defensive of their position when it comes to letting some of this stuff go. I mean, more recently, we're seeing some changes with some of them announcing APIs, but it's been a long road to get there compared to other countries. Yeah, and one thing about the API that was announced uh, recently, uh, it's uh, from my understanding of what was offered is more like a mortgage rate API. So it's it's very, <laughs> no, but I mean, it's, it's very, very different than what we're doing, right? So it's like, sure, yeah. they can offer like a mortgage rate API, but it's not gonna help the end user access data, right? It can help like a mortgage uh, broker, I guess. But anyway, now uh, it's not, it's another question. I would say like the position of big banks, or if we take like the top 10 banks in Canada is really different from one bank to the other. So far, we have received a lot of, I would say like openness from different financial institutions. And it's really it, like, it really depends on the team you're dealing with, right? It's such huge mm -hmm. organization. So you might go at, like, I'm going to take an example. It's not like a real case, but. If we take like Scotiabank, an example, I might go and meet with one team that actually wants to use Flink's API for better onboarding of their customers. And then I might, mm -hmm. uh, like, I might receive an email from another department saying, Hey, uh, you should stop scraping data from your website. There is a lack of communication. And I would say from my understanding, a lack of direction in terms of like, what should we do with the different aggregators? It's not the case with all financial institutions, but I tend to think that most of them don't have a clear plan on like 
how they should react to financial aggregation. Well, it's interesting. So I'm going to take a, a blind stab and say that the first department was the technology department and the second department was the compliance department. Um, <laughs> but, right um, <laughs> but you know what? I've been thoroughly frustrated by what I'll call, I'm not going to name names on this one, but about what I will call hypocrisy on the part of many of them, where I've seen some of these people offer, some of these organizations offer financial data scraping tools themselves yep. in order to capture the data on their own portal. But then they'll turn around and say, oh, if you use a data scraping tool, for anyone else, you're violating your privacy regulations. Yep. Your, 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 no, your privacy terms, which means that we are, you're no longer protected for credit card fraud. And I basically looked at that and said, wow, this is a court case that's going to be very easily won because <laughs> of your position. You cannot take both sides of that equation. It doesn't make sense. And frankly, again, I like to say sometimes these people breed on the fact that as Canadians, we don't necessarily look elsewhere for examples of how things are. And I mean, I know from you know, dealing with various international vendors for, for simple things such as accounting software that when they deal with Canada, they just start banging their heads against the wall because, you know, their countries have had open feeds for years yes. and you get transactional data pushed out, not pulled, but pushed. And something as simple, and, and I think the average Canadian is going to slowly start seeing that because something as simple as Apple Pay on my on my phone with Amex, you know, the second the transaction goes through, I get a pop-up message saying, hey, someone just spent this on your credit card. Yeah. And it's like... This is the way it should be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And regards with, uh, with the fact that some financial institutions basically use aggregators, but at the same time put in their terms and conditions that you should not share your information. Uh, we've done like a legal research from, uh, a legal team at Blake's. And what we basically got out of that research is that it would, like you said, be, uh, probably an easily won case if at some point an institutions would basically not cover any damage to the end user that have used a financial aggregator, but at the same time is asking them to share their credentials from other institutions directly on their website. So it's like you cannot take both positions at the same time. No, it's completely, I mean, I don't, you don't need a law degree to know that that's not going to stand up. Yeah. Like it's just ridiculous. And I think in a lot of ways, it also comes off as incredibly self-serving as, wait a sec, you see value in data aggregation so long as you're the only one who benefits from it, not the actual end consumer. Yeah. And that is something I think is utterly frustrating. I mean, and you know, you are, you know, what you're doing is right smack dab in the middle of probably one of the most hotly contested issues in tech right now, which is access to data rights. Yeah. Everything from, you know, personal stuff such as, you know, what you see on Facebook and what's happened there to, you know, but financial data being really the kind of the, the big, big elephant in the room on that one. And GDP, things like GDPR in the US, sorry, in the, U, in the UK, sorry, in the EU. How's your relationship with various, I mean, you must have been in the room with various government regulators over this sort of thing in the past. How has their reception been thus far? So I would say like it's a changing relationship. We're not old enough to have seen like basically their first reaction to financial aggregators because there's a lot of them that were there before we were even created. But when we started Flinks, we had the chance to chat with most of the time AMF, which is uh, the equivalent to OSC here in Quebec a couple times. And their position was very different from what we see right now. And I think two major events happened in the past couple of months that changed the regulator's perception on financial aggregation or what I like to say is financial data access. And these two events is, uh, well, first of all, is the Competition Bureau report back in December that was basically <laughs> stating that regulators should more openly accept financial aggregators or at least look at them. And the second one is the mention of uh, open banking in the federal budget a couple of of weeks ago that in my opinion are like I would say good milestone in terms of like the way Canadians and Canada is moving towards access to financial data. 
I mean, I'm glad to see that that the conversation is finally starting to pick up a little bit of steam here. I mean, we're still well behind, definitely behind Europe, definitely behind Australia and less so behind the U.S. But it's something that's you, you think about it and you tell people in law that this is your data. You have the right to that data. You should be able to do what you can with it. But then you make it as difficult as possible to download this stuff <laughs> and and. You know, having to make, you know, create manual feeds. I mean, I look at some of the things that have been done with still what I'll call first generation data scraping in my field in the US and I'm blown away. Like I sat through a demo for a financial planning software last week and the amount of time to get the financial planning, so the financial plan done is probably one third of what it takes me here <laughs> simply because they're able to scrape the data. First of all, so you have all the trans, you don't have to ask people what they're spending. You know what they're spending. Yeah. It also categorizes everything for you. And then it also flags the transactions that are going to investment accounts and insurance policies and basically links them to the insurance policies and investment accounts that also got scraped. So the data entry, which is the most time data acquisition, data entry, which is the most time consuming part of my, of my job is done with a couple of button clicks. And I was like, literally it was, it was such a monumental shift in my thinking to think that was possible to do it that fast. I was like, I was asking all kinds of questions, trying to find what was wrong with it. It was working like, no, you don't get it. This is how it should work. I'm like, <laughs> yes, you're right. Absolutely. This is how it should work. So, I mean, and that's, like I said, like that's generation one thinking. Um, you know, there was a previous episode with Sean Brayman from Plan Plus, where basically we had a discussion about how these were going to open up all kinds of opportunities going forward, where even say small retailers who were selling bricks and mortar type stuff would be able to, through a couple of simple apps, determine whether or not they want to extend financing themselves because of access to this kind of data. And the mind boggles at the number of permutations for things that can exist in the future if we have this kind of freedom. However, I can also understand why incumbent would be reluctant to let that go. So let's talk a little bit more about the company in general. So you guys have been around not that long. How did you guys get your start? Like who funded you guys? So as of now, we're a self-funded company. So uh, we did oh, wow. a safe round when we started the company and we raised about a million dollars from friends and family mm -hmm. and uh, the founders uh, themselves were three founders. So we haven't, like we decided not to do any, I would say like typical VC round as of now mainly for like keeping control on the company and being able to go and do her things by, uh, by ourselves. Right. So, yeah. And, and that was now, like I said, 16 months ago, I think. And when we started the company, we really had a clear vision on like where we going and how fast we want to go there. So we incorporated the company December 16 or December 12 in 2016. And we were able to generate our first revenues in May 2017. So everything happened very fast. It's interesting because uh, there's a lot of kind of dazzle or kind of a lot of glitz and glamour about the entire VC world. But as I said in other episodes, you know, if you don't want to, if you want to be on your own schedule and control your own destiny, you might not be able to take that money early on because you're going to be on their trajectory, not yours, right? So having the right partners are really hard to find. So I noticed from looking at the pictures of the three of you on your website, clearly you're big Habs fans because the logo is <laughs> prominently in the background and in playoff time. We're not going to talk too much about that. <laughs> so uh, what kind of, there's nothing you know, to it's say. It's still early going. So yeah, there's, nothing, there's nothing to be said. So what are the challenges you feel you've encountered thus far in your, in your journey? So one of the challenges is obviously hiring. We grow from three founders to now 27 persons or so in that short amount of time. So that was definitely the, the most challenging part of the business. But at the same time, we have invested a lot of time on like the cultural aspect of the business. And that helps us attract talent. 
And thanks to the time that we've put when we created the company and like what we want in terms of values and principles in the company, it helped basically when we do like an example, open house session, sync asset, it helps getting great talent inside the company, I would say quite fast. But hiring, I think it's the startup challenge for all companies across Canada, fintech or insurtech or whatever the the field we're in, mm-hmm. but yeah. at the same time, we're lucky enough here, at least in Montreal, but I would say in Canada, that we have a lot of talented people that are looking actually to work in startups. So that helps a lot as well. Interesting. So to the extent that you can open up about this, what do you currently have in your pipeline or what are the most exciting things you guys are working on at this point? Oh, it's definitely the scoring system. We've been <laughs> working on it for the past couple of months and we're keen to launch uh, the first version it's going to be a beta version used by some uh, key clients, but we're launching it in a couple of weeks. And we're planning basically to roll that out only in Canada for now, but we're actually planning to go in the States with that product probably by the end of the year. Now, let's just elaborate on that. Now, I understand that, of course, you get to sell the data to vendors, but the question becomes for me, what kind of consumer access is to that? Are you guys planning on some sort of customer-facing portal where I can see my own scores? Or is that still something that's going to kind of be provided through third parties only? For now, we're not planning to have like a consumer portal. We do going to have like some kind of online form where a consumer can basically go and request his uh, scoring based on his financial information. And this is to be uh, compliance with the different CRA regulations here in Canada. But for now, it's really going to be a B2B product. So basically, when you would go at some point, ask for an example, a mortgage, we would provide that score to that company that you were using, basically. So, yeah, I mean, you guys are definitely working on being the pipes behind the scenes in, uh, in this country, which thank you because, <laughs> quite frankly, needs to happen. In general, what excites you about your efforts, what you see in the industry uh, going forward? That's a very good question. I would say it's the amount of opportunities. The more as a business and as an entrepreneur before starting things, the more I get to learn about the overall uh, financial technology sphere, the more opportunities I see. But at the same time, the right choice is to basically stick, in most cases, stick to the plan that we have. But at the same time, if I would start a business tomorrow morning that was not flings, the number of like different opportunities that I see is, uh, is incredible. So it's cool for uh, new businesses, right? So as long as, I mean, you basically start working on an opportunity that do answer like a market demand, you should be good to go. But yeah, I would say, uh, that's what I find the most exciting in, in working at flings is, the amount of different opportunities that we see on a daily basis. You know, I was going to wrap up there, but I did, uh, I was, as I usually do when I'm on these interviews, I play around with people's websites and I came across one thing I just had to ask you about because it's uh, timely. You guys are doing some work with the, in the crypto space. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So we're not ourselves using any like blockchain and technology for now, but we do have mm-hmm. a bunch of different clients in the crypto sphere using our API, mainly for KYC. So uh, identity verification. It's Pretty much all I have to say about uh, our relation with crypto as of now, we have like long-term plans on like using blockchain technology, but I cannot say uh, anything additional on that. <laughs> Fair enough. It's, it's, in, it's in the pipe. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I would think that logically at some point that kind of flips. I mean, as hopefully the world moves towards utilizing blockchain technology for the actual recording of the bulk of transactional data, which is frankly what it was designed for in the first place. I would think, you know, at some point you guys are going to be aggregating data from that point going out as opposed to (laughs) the traditional routes going in. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's good that you guys have a foot in there already. Absolutely. 
So uh, with that, any any parting thoughts or or things we haven't covered that you want to you know share with the audience? Maybe uh, two quick things. The first one is I'm going to be a speaker at Payments Canada next week talking about instant okay. banking verification. So uh, anybody that wants to uh, come and see me there uh, is welcome to do so. And the second thing and is, where is that? it's in Toronto. I think it's uh, May 9 to May 11. Okay. And the specific place... Um, that's a good question. I don't have it uh, handy right now, but uh, I think we might be hearing this a little bit after that, unfortunately. So if it does happen, I apologize. Schedule a little flexible, <laughs> but anyway. And your second point, sorry. Yeah, we're actually opening an office in Toronto by DNF uh, June. So uh, anybody that is looking to work at uh, the what I could say fastest growing fintech company in Canada is welcome to uh, write to us, and uh, we're uh, happily going to look at uh, the resume. Excellent. We'll have to grab a drink when you move into town. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Perfect. Well, you've got to be out. Thank you very much for your time. I'm sure everybody's going to enjoy this and uh, very much appreciated. Uh, best of luck to you because uh, we, <laughs> we need better data aggregation in this country <laughs> desperately. Thank you, Jason. All right. Take care of yourself. So that was my interview with E. Gabriel Flinks. Unfortunately, this is likely going to air after his speaking engagement in Toronto, but nevertheless, I'm sure it was wonderful. That being said, as usual, just a couple pieces of housekeeping. If you like this podcast, please join the newsletter. We are notifying people when episodes come out, but we hope to expand that uh, to other community building endeavors in the future. So it's important that we have that information in order to contact you. And if you like this podcast, please feel free to share it on social media and with your friends and feel free to leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever it is you get your podcasts. And with that, I'm Jason Pereira. Until next time. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.